Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their men's health issues, break down stigmas, and start much-needed conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker, as always. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In this week's episode, I'm checking in with Justin Peach. Justin is the co-founder of the Second Tier Podcast, the self-described biggest podcast dedicated purely to championship football, which is the second tier in the English Football League. Justin also writes for Football League World for the championship section of their website. And in this episode, we discuss how and why he started Second Tier, how him and his co-founder were inspired to start the podcast by listening to Friends of the Pod, not the Top 20, and why they wanted to differentiate themselves from them. We also talk about the snobbery he's faced from certain elements of the online football content community and the challenges around work-life balance in running the pod alongside a full-time job. That's something I can definitely attest to. For Justin's mental health, we discussed the impact that his parents' divorce had on him when he was six years old and how he struggled to adapt to the new family his father made through his adolescence and adulthood. Justin witnessed the conflict with his parents as a child which affected him and he feels like he was an individual within his family because of the way his parents divorced and the fact that his siblings are also much older than him. We discuss his diagnosed depression when he was around 13 to 14 years old the struggles he had in university around anxiety and making friends, and how he still finds it difficult to make new connections and engage with people as a 28-year-old man. We finish by talking about what role his parents' divorce played into that introversion. So this is how my check-in with Justin Peach went. Justin Peach, welcome to the Just Check-In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. Outside of me replying to your tweets with very obscure Simpsons references, I hope this podcast isn't just a very humorous and fun, funny episode. How are you, mate? Yeah, no, I'm I'm really good. But yeah, I, I completely relate to these memes. I think my whole life is just living with memes and just how I best relate to people, which I think is, I don't know, perhaps a damning reference to what society has pushed me along towards. Yeah. I was going to say it's a damn, probably a damn reference to my own personality when all I do is speak <laughs> in memes and quotes and I haven't got anything else in the bank, but there we go. I found your journey really fascinating when we spoke off air, mate, and there's loads of things that I probably haven't spoken about with on the pod before when it comes to mm. your journey, and I'm really appreciative of the openness as well that you're going to go into with me. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, absolutely. I've, you know, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I'm not someone who opens up very often. So this will be, yeah, this will be a really good chat. Let's start the podcast by discussing yours and Ryan's baby, the second tier podcast. So tell me first how and why you were inspired to start it and the journey to where it is today. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I don't think it's as vivid or interesting as people might want it to be I think it's literally just because Ryan and I both love football I've grown up with Ryan I've known him since I was about five or six years old we've played football together we've gone to 
football together like we're both derby supporters we've ended up at games together etc so football's been a big part of our lives and obviously being derby supporters we spent a long time in the championship so we've just grown accustomed to championship football and all that it brings to well, football fans in general it's also an untapped media hole it doesn't get enough coverage i think sky are only just starting to look into it although still probably not enough and I just think it was it was a really good opportunity for us to just go into it. I think it helps that Ryan works in broadcasting and I just like blabbering on about championship football. Like my championship knowledge, I like to think is ridiculously in-depth and niche. Like I've, I've played a lot of football manager as well. So I can I can reference... That helps. <laughs> weird things, yeah. Um, I can reference weird niche things. And yeah, I think it just pushed us to, to start a podcast. I think I'd been badgering him for years. Like, why don't we let's just have a go? Let's try it. And we did, and it took off quite quickly. And I just think that gap in the market of not enough podcasts or not enough people talking about championship football just allowed us to fill the gap. Well, you talked there about this untapped market and Mm. arguably, I think, one of, if not the first big content creators to really exploit that market were Friends Event, the Not The Top 20 Boys. And they actually admit that they got a lot of their early clout or listeners, shall we say, from Huddersfield Town fans like me who sent <laughs> questions in and sort of listened, listened to them because they predicted us to finish exactly where we did in 2017. Mm. You told me you were inspired by them too, but you wanted to create your own brand and your own niche and differentiate yourselves from them. So how did you do that? Yeah, I used to listen to Not to Top 20 quite often, probably less so now just because time-wise getting older and stuff and obviously focusing a lot on our stuff it's it's difficult to tune in but yeah ryan and i both listened to it vividly years ago um, back when they first started rolling themselves and i think what they do is really good they're very detailed they're very analytical with stuff and ryan and i wanted to i mean i think i think we first tried to do a little bit of that while we were unknown i mean we, we were recording in the spare room of my house for example and we shared a mic between us and we were both quite sort of learning on the ropes and i think after about, yeah. yeah exactly yeah. after about seven or eight months of it i think we just started to venture into a more conversational element but as i say that bedrock of what not the top 20 did just really really helped and i think it's helped inspire quite a lot of individual fan podcasts as mm. well which is massive because Football fans need other people speaking about their clubs, I think, just because you get a different view on things, which I think is important, whether that's positive or negative. And I just think we've filled that gap quite nicely, whether supporters agree or disagree. Yeah, I just think we we filled that gap nicely. So, yeah, it was a yeah, it took a lot of inspiration, but finding our own niche, i.e., just having a conversation about football, that's really where we wanted to end up—just a friendly chat. And that's why I like responding to people on social was just getting their thoughts on things because everyone's got an opinion, and I think that's really important. One key message you wanted to get across to me on this podcast, Justin, is the idea that opinion is open and opinion is important. So how do you weave that A into STP and B also stop it a little bit from becoming a, how shall we say, buzzword for just outrageous clickbait (laughs) takes that some elements the football media do purely to provoke a reaction? I mean, your one about Stoke the other week was a little bit like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just get rid of everyone <laughs> to be fair i think that that is just pure frustration on stoke city as a football club i've put it them to finish in the top six like two of the last three seasons and they've let me down massively i'm just venting at stoke city with that point just <laughs> just get rid of it but yeah i think in terms of putting opinion out there i think it's really important that people do discuss things whether it's football politics or anything and i do think everyone has to be entitled to their opinion because that's their train of thought it's only when you start to be irrational 
then it becomes a bit silly. It's like if you talk about politics and you start getting all your information from unverified sources with absolutely no factor information from that, that's where it becomes a bit silly. But with the second tier podcast, we try to illustrate our points with statistics and and facts and, and trends, which is what everybody does, I think. You know, but we just do it in a more conversational setting, which I don't don't think people tend to like it. But if we don't do it that way, then we sort of fall into a category of we make a point, we back it with stats, and it becomes less conversational, and then we lose our tone of voice. It just becomes lost in things because I think we get a lot of responses saying you know, why don't you be more detailed? But as I say, you just lose that tone of voice, you lose that conversational setting. So yeah, I think having that aspect of opinion is important, just helps us put it out there. And if people want to agree or disagree, that's completely up to them. But just be rational with it. That's literally it, just be rational. You're saying that to football fans online, mate. Exactly. I don't think that's a quality <laughs> that, that online football fans tend to have. But anyway, moving on. When it comes to issues in this industry you wanted to talk about, Justin, the first one is a common one on this pod, which is work-life balance. And a lot of my listeners and a lot of my guests, I should say, balance doing what they do as a side hustle with their full-time job. So tell me how you manage putting out a podcast twice a week, I believe in saying, as a Mm. side hustle whilst managing your full-time job. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I have a full-time job, so I work 35, 40 hours a week in the week and doing the podcast around it used to be difficult but now we've been doing it for quite a long time it's become a lot easier but that being said midweek podcasts are horrendous so I have to stay up late to watch the highlights packages because usually what I'd normally do is watch the individual team's highlight packages which are usually around 10 minutes long if they've had a good game if it's been a nil-nil then it makes it easier that's 12 games 10 minutes each it's you know over two hours of footage that we could you know disseminate through and then You've then got to put your notes around it and that can go up to midnight, for example. And then I've got to be up at six o'clock in the morning to record a rhyme before we both start work. So the midweek ones are difficult. Sundays are nice because games are on a Saturday. We can go through games. No one does anything on Sunday anyway. <laughs> exactly. No one does anything on Sunday. We can go through games in the evening. Everything's set up nicely. It's just when Sky unruly puts you know games at three o'clock on Sunday, it just, just cocks things up. It has become a lot easier, but it, it is difficult. I mean, I've got another side also where I right for football websites at the minute my work-life balance is non-existent so i'd be hypocritical saying that you know i've got a good work-life balance because i don't at the minute it's it's horrendous so yeah it does get difficult but with the podcast it has eased i think if you create a routine for yourself it helps massively before we started recording we actually spoke a little bit about what i'm going to ask you next which is burnout Mm. because football and the football industry almost feels like when you're in it and when the season is going, it's seven days a week because football doesn't stop over Christmas, football doesn't stop over mm-hmm. Easter, football doesn't stop over New Year. So do you fear burnout and do you give yourself any breaks over those periods? I do fear burnout. I absolutely do. I've, you know, I've, I've suffered with it before, which I'm sure we'll, we'll go into a bit of depth later on. And, it's, and it's, it's not very nice. Football always used to be the break for me. But since I've taken on more football work, it's not been the case. Although the podcast is a nice break because it is essentially a conversation with my mate talking about football over the weekend. And, you know, with the format of the podcast, we get to talk to, to other people as well. But yeah, burnout is a is an absolute nightmare. And it's it's one of those things that as much as you try and avoid it, it does creep up on you, especially if you're not factoring time to yourself. Like I do a lot of things outside of 
podcasting. You know, I, I used to play a lot of football, for example, but I stopped that to spend more time on the podcast. It's, it's your life, bro. It's a life. It's a second <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah, it is. But now it's you know, it seems like my time is literally just around preparing for the podcast or preparing for other bits and bobs in around sort of freelancing for with football writing and stuff. So yeah, it's hard to break down into segments but you know burnout is a real thing I, I don't necessarily think the calendar side of things is an issue because I don't mind that sort of thing I don't mind working through Christmas I don't mind working through New Year I've always been a person who I get really bored if I'm not doing anything I find it difficult to switch off I think that's the main thing really difficult to switch off so I'm always doing something I mean even playing on football manager just chilling out at home you don't switch off playing football manager you, you're switched on and yeah, it's, it's just a, yeah, a tricky thing. But even when you're watching football on a Sunday evening, you know, Super Sunday, you don't really switch off. And it's it's quite a profound thing. I actually listened to the podcast with Carl Robinson and, and Paul Warren. Uh, the BBC released it not too long ago. And Carl Robinson had a really deep conversation with the in-house psychiatrist or psychotherapist at Oxford. And it was really, really interesting that even when he's trying to switch off watching football, he's never actually switched off. He's always switched on. You know, it made me think about football in a completely different way, which has sort of changed my approach. It's made me change my approach a little bit to when I'm actually relaxing. Like with the World Cup on at the moment, at the time of recording, I am relaxing, I am switching off. Yeah, I have two points on that. First, I completely get you when it comes to switching on or not being able to switch off from being switched on because I kind of had that relationship with social media in the sense mm. that a lot of my guests come from social media. So whenever I'm on it, it's halfway keeping in touch with the news, but also like, is there someone who looks interesting I can send mm -hmm. a DM to, I can follow. So it's yeah. just a perpetual cycle of continual scrolling, exactly. which is uh, not actually that great when I think about it. But also there was another point about it kind of taking over your life. And I'm exactly the same because I'm always writing podcasts. I'm always writing mm. running orders, scripts. And I'm exactly the same with you when you said you, you get bored quite easily if you're not doing anything. And I remember really distinctly a couple of years, I think this might have been last year or a couple of years ago, and I said to myself, right, I'm going to take a break over Christmas. No pods, no nothing. And I did. I got about three days into it. I was like, nah, I just got to start approaching more guests. Yeah. <laughs> it's just because <laughs> I couldn't deal with not having the gap. It's horrendous. It is horrendous. But I've had a conversation with my half about it. And I said, oh, you know, I've got Christmas off. We'll be recording the podcast, obviously, with the football schedule. But I've got Christmas off. She's like, have you actually got Christmas off, though? And I was like, yeah, I'm only working two days. I'm only writing two days. And I've, I've only got podcast stuff. And it's like, okay, so you don't have Christmas off then? And I was like, well, I do because it's not actual work work. But then again, it is work. I'm not actually switching off over Christmas. So it's, yeah, it's just one of those things. But then that's what I mean. Like burnout can creep up on you like that. And it's like you do need time to, to just not do anything, to literally just sit on the sofa and unfortunately watch Christmas films. Another issue you were keen to discuss is this certain level of snobbery you've experienced <laughs> from within the industry doing the work you do, Justin. Where is the snobbery coming from and how does it impact your mental health? Yeah, it's it's a weird one because I think there's a certain community on football social media that live and die by the data side of things. And I completely understand it. And even with the podcast, even with the second tier, you know, Ryan and I do incorporate stats to just reaffirm what we're saying, just to say, if we if we look at Blackburn in isolation, I know contextually it's, it's not the best, but you know, at the minute they're flying quite high in the championship, but trend-wise they don't create a lot of chances. And you can see that with with XG, even just shots created, just simple stats like that. We do use data to reaffirm what we say, but there's a certain community who's sort of really gets down its nitty gritty side of things and tries to correct you. And it's like, it's not really what football's about. 
as I say, with our podcast, we try and form our opinions. We try and support it with stats and data. And then for that then to be rubbished by really granular details that I won't say no one cares about, but certainly people don't want to consume football in that manner. And if you want to consume football in that manner, there's a certain segment that you can go towards. Our segment that we want to talk to, i.e. the people who listen, they enjoy the way we dissect things. They enjoy the way we talk about it. That's who our target segment is. And that's what it is. I don't think people quite understand that we're not catering to everyone. We're catering to a certain section of football supporters who want to digest the content in the way that we deliver it. And I just think that can start to get in your head a little bit. And then you start to bring in certain things that you don't want to talk about to try and justify it, i.e. more granular detail. And then you start to lose focus. And then that starts to impact what you do on a weekly basis. And then you start to not enjoy it as much. That sort of thing. And I think we've both been through periods like that while recording the podcast and putting the content together to the point where actually we we just strip it back down again and do it the way we want to do it. And we've stopped listening to, you know, outside noise and we've started to focus on what we really want to do, which is what we do now. And, I, you know, I think it works to an extent and there's always room for improvement, but it's just that outside noise. It doesn't need to be there. And we do what we do because we enjoy it. And that's, that's essentially it. I find listening to this, there's a certain irony here because 10 to 15 years ago, like you, like me, you know, in the school playground, I'm presuming you grew up in Derby, mate, so maybe you're insulated mm. from this a little bit, but I grew up in North East London supporting Huddersfield Town, which was pretty <laughs> much unheard of for any child back then. And if you didn't support Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea, even to a certain extent, you know, maybe West Ham, but even they probably got it a little bit, you were basically abused and shouted <laughs> at and derided, etc. But now we're in this stage where EFL content and EFL fans have a voice particularly so we feel more validated and we feel Mm -hmm. like we can have a say and that attitude has changed there's now beginning to be am I right in saying like a little bit of that attitude coming back from within the content community itself is that not an irony there yeah no you're absolutely spot on because it's you know it's the same with it's it's a big club mentality and you do get that in a championship I think there are clubs that have an inferiority complex we've had it with some Rotherham fans who disagree with how we're talking about Rotherham in a way so, for example, I think you know it wasn't too long ago where I think we were talking about the Norwich Rotherham game. Some of the Rotherham supporters were just disappointed in in how we were contextualising the game from a Norwich Norwich perspective. I tend to try and avoid saying little old football clubs like mm. little old Rotherham, but actually in the in the gulf of things, budget wise, club size wise, they're nowhere near the level Norwich are. We have to cater it to a not to a Rotherham listener, but to a general listener who is maybe a fan of Huddersfield who needs it breaking down in that in that way but you know I think as well as that the irony with some certain things you know we get teams that come down from the Premier League and supporters that come in from you know teams that have, have come from the Premier League uh, yeah, it was Fulham last season actually and the whole parachute payment argument but there's this snobbery I think that comes from certain football supporters coming down into EFL and they just disagree with things just because they've been in the Premier League. And it does make things harder, but actually, from a championship perspective, yeah, it works completely differently to how the Premier League works. Fans interact completely differently, I think, to, to how Premier League fans react because they actually go to games. They know and understand 
how the division works and how it all breaks down. Yeah, I don't think you can pull the wall over championship supporters' eyes. And I just think that irony comes from there, really. And I just think it's that snobbery. I think it just creeps in a little bit. That that big club mentality. I think Derby fans have had it. You know, being a Derby fan myself, Derby fans are very difficult on social media. So Forest fans are. I mean, you you would have experienced it recently as well. Yeah. So yeah, I just think it's a perhaps a big club snobbery that um, that creeps in a little bit. Let's reflect then on this journey doing second tier. So doing it for the time you have, what has it taught you about yourself, mate? It's a good one actually. To be confident in your opinion. I've always been an incredibly quiet person. I've never been a conversational, chatty person. I st- I'm still not that kind of person now. So having the podcast to to voice my thoughts really has been really important for my own personal journey. As I say, I'm I'm just I'm not you know a socially gifted person. But actually, if you know if you talk to me about football, if you talk to me about championship football, I talk to you all day. And it's just finding that little portion of my personality that I can push out via the podcast that has just really helped me grow as a person. So I think the yeah, the podcast has helped massively on a personal level, just because I wouldn't have been able to, I don't think develop, even like growing as an adult, just develop my own, my own ability to be open. I think that's it. It's just, just be open, just putting your opinions out there and being open. We talked all about second tier. Let's talk about, your own mental health journey, Justin, and go a bit deeper. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Justin we meet here? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think growing up, it was, you know, I had a busy home life. I'm the youngest of four. I've got two older sisters and older brother. And we always had people passing through the house, whether it be family or close family friends. So it was, it was always good to be around that sort of aspect. But I think... Growing up, I've always I was always a quiet kid. Yeah, always a really quiet kid, and I think that's sort of followed me into adult life, which I don't think's don't think it's a problem. It's just you know the portion of my personality I don't tend to go into too much. But yeah, growing up, parents got divorced when I was quite young, which I think impacted me quite heavily. Which obviously then had a knock on effect. My social aspects, you know, how I communicate with people, how I view relationships and whatnot. I think you know these things do have an impact. I don't hold anything against. My parents, it's just a part of life. It's just how it is. But I think it does impact your personality and how you view things, how you deal with things, you know, emotionally, how it how it all works as well. It got quite difficult after that point, you know, on a personal level, trying to deal with that, trying to deal with not having my dad around as, as regularly as normal families do. I think making comparisons as well has always been an issue of mine. I think that's stemmed from that, my older brother and older sister had a relatively normal upbringing, whereas my younger sister and I had a relatively uneven upbringing. You know, the difference in having a divorced parent compared to having a parent who's happily married, for example. We had very different upbringings, and I just think that, yeah, perhaps reflects on on how we are as people. But yeah, it was it was, it was rocky, but yeah, I, had, I had a loving home, so I was very fortunate. But these things do affect you; they do affect your mental health and. They do impact you, yeah, growing up. And I think that's something that I haven't really met head on properly, probably until the last three or four years. Your dad then remarried and found a new partner and your routine changed whereby the weekends you were spending him were no longer as stable, shall we say. So how did that affect the way mm. you perceived yourself as a boy and a man? How did you relate to him and within your wider family structure as well? Yeah, growing up, 
I think even now I'm very routine driven. Probably mentioned it already in the episode how routine driven I am. And if my routine gets upset, I get distracted. I get frustrated. I don't do very well with, with change naturally. Um, I think obviously that's stemming from having divorced parents quite young. Having such a change at home is massive. I think my relationship at that point with my dad changed. I was used to seeing him every weekend, probably a couple of nights a week as well. And being young and growing up, we'd go to football together, which was a very important cog for me. He'd come and watch me play football on a Sunday morning, which again was really important. And then when that suddenly stops and then you have to accept that there are other people in your life, it's very difficult, I think, for a 10 or 11-year-old to sort of understand and accept. And I just never got it. And I think because there was a lot of early volatility from my parents when they got divorced, didn't really get an understanding or the best way to digest it, you know, from a mother. It's just one of them things, you know, there's always some anger there from divorced parents and I don't blame her for it, but I think that impacted things massively. But yeah, that upsetting routine just absolutely crippled me emotionally. just couldn't deal with it to the point where I was diagnosed with depression when I was, I think I was 12. I missed a lot of school through it. And that's the sort of thing that sticks with you. Once you've been told that you've been diagnosed with depression or imagined anxiety or anything like that, no matter how young you are, it's just something that stays with you. It sticks with you. And I think from that point, you've got to work on it. You've got to make it vulnerable. You've got to adjust when you need to adjust. A bit like any illness, I think. But it's just something you've got to accept and, and deal with. I couldn't deal with as a, as a youngster. Didn't really get the tools or understand how to deal with it either to the point where I was just lying in bed all day, mm. um, which is not good for a not good for a 12-year-old. We're going to get to your depression and anxiety diagnosis in a bit, mate. But I just want to go back to your new family structure because mm. what you're going to talk about is quite taboo, I think, in a lot of families because it's so personal and it's so visceral in how things change. Because you said to me that your dad has his new partner. He's now building this new family, as he would because he's divorced his he's divorced mm. your mum and he's got every right to do that. But you now had new step-siblings in your life. Yeah. So how did that impact you? Because you said to me that you often felt like an only child within your own family. Mm -hmm. Just unpack that for me. I mean, I was the youngest, as I said, I was the youngest of four and my parents got divorced when I was six. So a lot of the time that I spent with my dad, it was usually just me. Sometimes my sister, who was just two years older than me, she would come as well and we would do stuff together. But it would just be me and my dad. And that gave me a feeling of being an only child. And because my brother is 12 years older than me and my other sister is nine years older than me, it's a big age gap. They were young adults by the time I was you know, six or seven. They were teenagers and what have you and sorting out their lives and, and going and going their way. You know, I did feel like an only child at times. And when you start to introduce step-siblings into that family structure, it's that routine aspect that I was mentioning. That gets completely changed because you're having to share your time with other people and it's not that I couldn't do it I just couldn't just couldn't get my head around it I couldn't get my head around the need to not have that relationship with my dad anymore my relationship at that point changed with my dad and it was something that I just struggled to deal with you know and I think looking back now it's quite strange obviously it's, it's a very upsetting thing for a young person to go through and I don't blame my dad for it at all he's entitled to moving on with his life it's absolutely fine at no point did he not want me in his life. He just had other variables to deal with. And, you know, if, if you look at it like that. And I just think, yeah, dealing with that was, was tricky. It was difficult. I couldn't do it. And the only way I, I felt like I could was, well, I couldn't. 
I couldn't. It's simple as that. I, I really couldn't. I hold no issues or qualms with it now. It's just one of those things is that until you know how to deal with it, until you know what you're dealing with, you know, I had to go to doctors, got diagnosed with depression, and it was just, okay, then what now? And I think back then, well, how old am I now? I'm 28, 14, 15 years ago. There was nothing to help. It was, yeah, Yeah. you know, it's just like, okay, right, what now? Before we move on to the impact of the divorce for you as an adult, mate, you also said that despite the fact that your mum and dad always did their best for you, they weren't always the best at hiding the conflict (laughs) from you, even post-divorce. So how did that affect your mental health, seeing that? Just seeing people, I don't think they ever hated each other. But what they said between each other, it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, uh, this is horrendous. I mean, it, just looking back on it now, I didn't I didn't think that as a kid, but it's just weird thinking that your parents hate each other. And if they hate each other, as a kid, your mindset is like, well, why did they have me then? Did they even want me? And, you know, you start to run things like that around your head when, when you're trying to grow up. And I think that just creates a massive barrier between an emotional state as a youngster growing up and things become very different from that point. Well, I became very, not emotionally shut off, but disinterested in allowing myself to be opened up, allowing people in and whatnot, which is horrendous. I don't think you should do that. I think in doing that, I think it impacts your relationships you have when you're growing up and you're getting older and stuff. And even now it still, still impacts my life you know my ability to socialize with people my ability to want to socialize with other people let people in it all comes into that so yeah it's 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 a a difficult one but I just think yeah that volatility not that I think it was ever normal it was the opposite I didn't think it was normal I don't think it was right but it just makes you think as a kid why on earth did you have me if you hate each other that sort of thing and Mm -hmm. it becomes very difficult to deal with and it's just that notion of well they don't love each other so how can they love me sort of thing it's an incredibly irrational thought process but if you're not hiding that sort of emotion from children and stuff and not having adult conversations then unfortunately that's how they, they might digest it and mm. looking back now i think that's why i've become a very rational logical person is because seeing that growing up that's just no way to talk to each other people mm. anyone you love or anything like that do you think you'd be the person you are or like the person you are if the divorce hadn't happened I have no idea. Yeah, I've never experienced a quote-unquote normal upbringing. You know, I've got friends who are, you know, their parents are still happily married and stuff, and they're great. They're great people. I don't know if I'd be more like them. You know, not that I'm not a good person or anything, but just my ability to deal with different things emotionally, my ability to perhaps not get upset at a broken routine, for example, my ability to understand other people's emotions and whatnot that may have all changed but I think if I look back on it and reflect on it I've used all of that and come out for the better if that makes sense rather than use it allow it to build up and it negatively impact me I've used it to try and positively impact me and and how I use my thought process now and and go through that because like for example if if I have kids and I end up getting divorced myself I would never ever get angry in front of them because of the things that I went through so I think it has taught me a lot of lessons even now just talking to people I would never get angry I'd never shout I don't ever shout I'm not a loud person I think it just stems from that just that you know yelling voices yelling at people and stuff it's not how you get your point across when I listened to your podcast episodes and you spoke there about 
this closed off mentality that you have at times. I can almost hear it a little bit in the way that you present or your tone of voice at times, because it's very conversational and very professional and you clearly put tons of work into your podcast, but there's, there's almost something missing. Would that be fair to say like a, mm. like a depth or something that reflects the, the closed off mentality that you have or had? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting one. I've always been monotone. I think even at school, you know, people used to rip me for it and I was never bothered by it. It was, it was funny. I've always been monotone. I've always been not, I'm trying to think of the word to describe it. I've never elevated my voice pitch or anything. It's mm -hmm. always been this constant pitch. And I think when I deeply think about it, and it ties into a question you asked, you know, a few minutes ago about, you know, if I'd be a different person or not, you know, I might well be like, mm -hmm. for example, my eldest sister, very emotional person, very out there personality. And she didn't grow up how I grew up, for example. So if I had a relatively stable upbringing in terms of, you know, parents together and whatnot, I might be a more fun, outgoing extrovert. <laughs> I might well be. I might be, yeah, a little bit more interesting. I don't know. It's, it's quite funny. I think, as I say, it depends on that question you asked not too long ago, but I think you are quite right. I think not opening myself up in a certain way probably reflects in how I portray myself on a podcast mm. or, you know, speaking to people, giving presentations. I like things to be very rigid. And if it's rigid, yes. there's no room for things coming in or things going out it's just shock there. It's, that's which is how what it is. you went through yeah exactly let's talk about that depression you spoke about earlier mate and when you were diagnosed because it happened around 13 to 14 years old mm -hmm. and at the time you were also having a lot of time off school mm. so did you know at the time something was wrong or did you just see it as for example being tired all the time or something else entirely yeah it's not something i've spoken about at length i don't think i've even spoken to my fiance about it at length but looking back, I don't think I've given it too much thought either, just because it's it's a chapter of my life I don't tend to dive into too much. But if I, if I look mm. back at it and look at it in detail, I had this overwhelming feeling of just not wanting to do anything, which as a 13, 14-year-old, strange, because you want to be Out doing stuff with your yeah. friends. You want to be, you yeah. be doing that. You want to be going to school and just with your mates and whatnot. And I think that change in routine with my dad and spending weekends with him and whatnot and that changing and that massively impacted my mindset to the point where I didn't want to do anything. I think everyone describes it as just a weird dark cloud just following you everywhere you go. It doesn't matter what you're doing, where you're going. And my only escape actually was was going to football and, and you know, playing football or going to Derby games, which is weird in itself because Derby are an absolute head case of a football club. It's had a bit of a yeah, a humorous spin on it. But yeah, it, it just felt like a, a dark cloud. I mean, getting up in the morning, I'd stay in bed till 9, 10 a.m., which isn't too late. I think a teenager will think that's quite early. But, you know, not going to school and stuff and just willing to just lie down for hours. It's, it's bizarre looking back, but I think that's just how it impacted me and just that ability to be motivated and do anything just wasn't there. And I think, as I say, being 13 14 years old it's probably you might want some of your most active important years i spent most of it lying horizontally just not wanting to do anything i think that sort of thing impacts how you develop socially and whatnot and it's probably why i'm a little bit more shut off now it was just a weird thing and i say to be diagnosed with it i had no idea what it meant i think the person who diagnosed me wanted to put me on antidepressants and i was like i don't want to take any tablets or anything so i think even then i was like 
I still want to deal with it how I want to deal with it um, which is you know pretty much my approach now so really tricky one to break down but just that ability to not be motivated to do anything you've got to be really impacted by it to not want to even just get out of bed and I think if anybody gets that point it's a long journey but it's always like the end of the tunnel to throw a cliche in it's just getting there that's the difficult bit how did you deal with it what got you through it that's a good question I think really small steps really really small steps tiny tiny steps I think looking back I think the first step was just getting back into school getting back into school amongst friends and having a normal routine because as I say lying in bed and watching the right stuff on channel five is not what a 13 year old should be doing it's all politics and whatnot it's you know I should be in school and just hanging around with mates and stuff so yeah just just really small steps I had a really good sort of counselor at school who got me into school so I read tons of books tons and tons of books in library for the first like couple of months and then it'll be going to the old lesson here and there so I think that approach to that you know coming in doing those small things making those small adjustments going to play football with my friends going to play for my local team doing those sorts of things really really helped and by the end by the time I was tail end of 14 I was back in school normally still having time off still having bouts of it I think even getting to 15 16 I'd still have three or four days off every now and then school didn't really understand it but there are some times where it just hits you and it's just like okay just got to deal with it not like that but it's just something you've got to deal with in the the short term and, and, and take those steps again because as I say once you're diagnosed with depression I think it can hit you at any point in your lifetime and at that point, you just got to deal with it once again, however way you choose to. Everyone's got a different approach. But as I say, the approach that I take now is just tiny, tiny steps. You also experienced a lot of anxiety in your teenage years, which then bled into university. And you said to me you found making friends in university in the first two years of your degree quite difficult. I think all of us find that to some mm. degree and some extent, but you found it particularly pertinent. So why do you think that was? Was it coming back? To example, you know, a fear of abandonment that perhaps the divorce left you with. Was it the the individuality that you said you expressed where you felt quite isolated? What was the source for that? It's the change in routine that impacted me. Because again, like going from primary school where you're with... Because again, like my dad getting a new partner, and a new family and stuff happened around the same time that I was going from primary school to senior school. So there's that change in routine and your support network, i.e. your best friends at primary school. They're there and everything's normal. And then you go to senior school and you've got to get to know different people. That's yeah, really world, difficult really thing to do. I think it's on, honestly one of the biggest world changes that happens to you, genuinely. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and I think that the way it impacted me, again, just that change in routine. And, you know, I've got to learn to like new people. And because I've got this thing with my dad going on and having to learn to like and get on with new siblings it's it's very difficult and then you just shut yourself off emotionally and that socialization aspect the motivation to do it just isn't there and then you develop through senior school and then you go to university you got to do it all again it's literally going from primary school to senior school all over again it's a really difficult thing to do and if I didn't handle it very well the first time second time around where I'm probably not prepared for it because I'm just quite naive I'm a teenager very naive and I'm just thinking I'm just going to go to university and everything's going to be great and it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't great. It was as difficult, I think, as, as it was back when, you know, going from primary school to senior school. There are new things that develop, like the getting anxious and not wanting to, 
you know, getting to the front door of a of a lecture theatre and going, yeah, I can't do this. I'm going. You know, it's just things like that. And then eventually, you know, going through university, looking back, I, mean, I certainly could have handled it better. But you know, I had a close friend who fortunately was with me, you know, on my course, and because he went, it made it a bit easier for me. But I took the step to change courses at the end of that year because I thought. I need a completely fresh start. If I'm going to handle university properly, I need a completely fresh start. In hindsight, looking back now, I should have stuck to that degree because I would have preferred to become a physiotherapist than a marketing exec. But making that step, I think, on a personal level, professionally, absolute disaster, but personal level, it helped me develop as a person, helped develop my social skills. I learned a lot more about myself, probably, than I did about any subject that I was actually learning about over those couple of years. And fortunately, I, you know, I met my fiance at uni as well. So it's, it paid dividends for me. But as I say, the anxiety, it built up and everything like that. And as I say, I just cut cloth and went and started again. It worked for me in a way. Still struggled to really put myself out there, but I handled it much better than I did in that first year where I just kept myself to myself. So is that approach, do you think, then, testament to the risk and reward of letting your guard down? You're probably right, yeah. But if I perhaps let my guard down in my first year, you know, things would be completely different. It took me a year to adapt to it. It took me a year to probably accept that I'm not going to get through university if I don't do it. You know, I think at the end of that final year, I was willing to quit university, do an apprenticeship. Probably would have saved me money in the long term, but... You know, it wasn't the right way to deal with it. It was you know, the right way to deal with it was to be mature and not fall back into a. You know, when I was diagnosed with depression, you know, I was I was very reliant on my mum, and that's the sort of mindset I brought upon myself. I was like, oh, I'll just go home. I'll just go home because it's nice there. It's great. Whereas actually, taking the risk, starting again, going afresh, I was able to handle it as a you know an adult, and I think that helped massively. Let's move on to the final issue you wanted to discuss on your mental health journey, Justin, which was a breakdown you had in a previous job during the first COVID-19 lockdown. So just tell me about the build-up to this and what triggered it. Dealing with anxiety, I think, is just something that I'm, I'm always going to do. I'm always going to have. Dealing with bouts of depression is just something that I'm always going to deal with. And I, I accept that. That's absolutely fine. I think that's my mental health journey. I think the way I view it is... It's a game of Tetris. You know, if I try and visualize it, it's old of Tetris. school references now. This oh, is God, old yeah. school references. I mean, surely people still play Tetris. I don't know. No, maybe they've got mate. some weird. People play Pokemon, Sapphire, and whatever it is. Oh, crikey. Yeah. Okay. I can't think of any other reference. It's got to be Tetris. If, if anyone's <laughs> younger than 25 here, then please Google Tetris. But yeah, basically, Tetris is a game where you just try and, you know, shapes are falling from the top of a page and they're falling to the bottom and you've got to try and fit them into blocks and if you get them in the right blocks that the blocks move and you're still falling to the bottom whereas if they start to build up it gets to a point where it's literally not game over but it gets to a tipping point that's pretty much i think how that breakdown happened was everything covid brought i.e upset in routine that complete change in routine so my routine at that point of being able to switch off from work being able to relax was playing football you know, playing Sunday league football, going to the gym four or five times a week, going to Derby games. All of that was completely taken away. And, you know, 
it happened. Everyone had to deal with it in, in a, their own certain way. And at that point, I just started a new job. So I started a new job in February. Lockdown happened in March. So it's like, oh, crap, okay. And then when you're in your house all the time, it gets difficult because, again, there's no routine. You know, I've gone for one walk or done a bit of a workout in the garden. There's no routine there. And I just think that lack of routine impacted me massively, impacted my ability to switch off from work, impacted my ability to deal with setbacks at work, my ability to listen to clients and take information on board just completely went to the point where now I was just, I was logging into work, but pretty much just staring at a screen. I just wasn't doing anything. It led to a point about seven months later, literally seven months to a new job. Fortunately, they were great. The place I was working at was great. They had a psychologist on retainer, you know, allowed me to talk to a psychologist once a month and that helped massively but it got to a point where everything was just building up and by October where you know we'd already had a soft lockdown we'd been let back out but we'd come back in and you know weren't allowed to do anything again I just completely stopped I just completely stopped functioning I was just like can't do it can't open my laptop weirdly my only escape was during that second lockdown was recording the podcast and having that routine of preparing notes watching the football that that really really helped me but anything else i just couldn't function and i just burnt out up until that point because i felt like i needed to to catch up on the things that i was missing because i felt like i wasn't getting enough done i was doing 10 12 hours and it was just needless and i was just allowing things to build up and build up and build up without having that ability to let them out i.e going to football i.e going to the gym there wasn't any of that and i just think that just hit me just hit me mm. and I was just like this isn't good and to be fair I think you know the psychology I was speaking to was like you probably need a couple of weeks off work and I was like okay fair enough and I ended up getting signed off for a month and I was like I'm still not ready and I ended up getting signed off for another month so just accepting that that was happening was a really difficult thing just accepting that the burnout was was coming was a really difficult thing and I think I learned a lot from that I learned a lot of how to deal with that work-life balance, which helped massively to the point, <laughs> quite ironically now, where I'm, I'm probably getting to that area again where I'm burning out even now. I'm taking a lot of work on board and I'm not listening to myself. It's that thing where you, that's what I mean, like everyone deals with their mental health differently, but right now, you know, at the time of recording, I'm not working on it well enough. You know, I'm not taking the advice I gave myself on board two years ago I completely forgot about that just because I've allowed the pressures of normal life just to build up again you know it's not work pressures it's it's now you know home pressures I've, I've bought a house I need to invest in a new bathroom and stuff it's just pressures like that that have encouraged me to take on more work which is, means I'm not getting enough free time which is not ideal and it's yeah all those things that I learned a couple of years ago I've completely utterly ignored which is silly really let's reflect on your mental health journey now justin before we move on to our quick fire questions so a what has this journey taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to the eight-year-old justin who was struggling to deal with the divorce of his parents perhaps the 13 or 14 year old justin who had just been diagnosed with depression struggling with anxiety or the 20 year old justin who was struggling to make friends in university what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I guess as a cliched answer, everything everything's going to be okay. That sort of thing. Like, it's not a disaster that 
your dad's got a new family. You're still his son. I spend a lot of time with my dad now, for example, and nothing's changed. You know, my step siblings, I've got a stepbrother who comes to football with us, has been coming to football with us for the last 18 years or however long it is. Everything's absolutely fine. You don't need to worry about that sort of thing. As a teenager, again, you're allowed to be anxious, you're allowed to be scared, but don't let that hold you back from pushing on and doing things that get you out of that comfort zone. Like I did at university, like going from a sports science degree to a business degree, having had no business experience was a pretty significant jump to make. Having had that mindset back when I was a teenager, 15, 16, probably would have helped me adjust a lot more. Like it's okay, just take a risk, just take those risks. And if they, they fall flat, you can learn from them. If, if people don't like your personality, then that's absolutely fine. The thing that I would say is just everything's absolutely fine. Everything's mandible. Everything's moldable and changeable. You can adjust however way you need to. You don't need to shut yourself off, that sort of thing. I think that's what I'd say. It's a, an interesting question to, to ask, but I think just, just reassuring myself at any age that, Everything's adaptable. Everything can change. You can change your routine. An upsetting routine is not the end of the world. Feelings still exist between parents loving you and siblings loving you and all that. Friends still love you. You know, things don't change. That's it. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Justin, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? I say my mental health is good. I know I've mentioned going into a burnout aspect, but I would say overall my mental health is good. Like if I look at myself 10 years ago, I would never want to dip into new things. But over the last year, like for example, yeah, I think I said that playing football on a Sunday morning was always my rock. It was always my way to unwind and relax and, and enjoy things. But I stopped that in April and I started doing CrossFit and it's become that, linchpin for me it's become that absolute anchor that I thought football would be forever I think that ability to to use those mechanisms has helped me massively and it's helping me deal with this I think a, a potential threat of burnout coming in but I, I would say overall it's 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 in, it's in a good place it's in a manageable place good stuff man yeah like I say I'm getting close to burnout but I think conversations like this help where you sort of acknowledge it and it's actually okay well take a step back we can deal with it what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think being told you're diagnosed with depression at 14 might make you think, well, that's probably when it was, but I probably didn't start to understand mental health and its impact on me until I was about probably 16, 17. When after I've had these long periods of time off from school that when I'm 16 17 where I still have four or five days off every now and then where I'm just like I can't get out of bed that's probably when I became very self-aware of it or more self-aware of it and, and its impact on me and even then I think if I think back to certain things I think even the last sort of few years where I've said I don't want to go to something to an event because it's new it's people that I don't know there's that anxiety level. That's probably where I've become more mature about how I deal with it, but certainly more aware of you know my mental health and how it affects me mentally, way in my head. 
probably not till like 16, 17 after being diagnosed, actually being diagnosed with depression. But ability to deal with it, probably not until, yeah, 25, 26. Can you now tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I would say this is not in a professional setting. This is probably the first deep conversation I've had about and reflected on my depression when I was you know, a child. I've never opened, fully opened up to it to my mother half even now. I've never really fully opened up to it with my parents even now. It's always something that I've always shut off. So I think actually having a conversation about it and acknowledging, I don't think, I don't even think my friends quite realize I was, or even know I was diagnosed with depression when I was a kid. I've never spoken about it. I've never mentioned it. So I think this is probably the first time where I've said it out loud, really. You know, I was diagnosed with depression as a kid. I was diagnosed with anxiety. I've dealt with it. You know, I didn't enjoy university at the start because I was dealing with it. You know, I don't think anybody knows outside of my other half and the psychologist I was speaking to that I had burnout a couple of years ago, that I had a breakdown a couple of years ago. I don't think Mm -hmm. anyone knows. You know, I was recording the podcast at the same time. I don't think anybody knows. So I think it's probably the first conversation where, yeah, I've spoken about wow, it. Wow, that's a big step, man. Yeah. You should be proud of yourself. Let's talk about triggers now because you've spoken about positive tools. So what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be being in a particular social environment, things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I've probably not figured them all out yet. I would say the ones that come to my mind straight away are that complete upsetting routine. Now, when I say that, it is literally when you take all of those mechanisms that help completely out of your hands, i.e. a lockdown, that will trigger anyone. But even even now, I think probably over the last few months, I've felt overworked and tired. And that's because I'm not concentrating enough on the things that I love doing, which is going to CrossFit, which is going on long walks with my dog and my, my other half. I'm not focused enough on stuff like that. That's getting to a point where it's building up. I need to introduce stuff like that back into my life rather than sitting at my desk for 10 hours a day, seven days a week, because that's not healthy. So it's stuff like that. It's probably the best way I can manage it and understand where those triggers come from. If there was a mantra in life that defined or summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? A mantra? I don't know. Are there any examples you can think of? I mean, like take every day as it comes, something like that, or a saying or something that you use to apply to your life or mental health. Tetris. (laughs) (laughs) What, just keep getting rid of the lines? (laughs) Yeah, I think the way I visualize it, obviously those blocks coming down, you've got to constantly, you know, if if you see uh, mental health as Tetris and all these blocks coming down, you've got to try and put those blocks into the right, you know, corresponding blocks so they don't get to a point where they build up and build up and build up and then you start to get, and then you get to that tipping point and you completely stop and stop functioning. I think if I look at it like that, you know, if I keep going through the levels and I keep managing my mental health, it will never get to that point. It will never get to that point where it builds up. So I guess in that sense, yeah, I would say mental health is like Tetris. And it's very nonchalant, mm. but I think I have a fairly logical way of thinking and that's the most logical way I can... Because it's, it's so illogical. It doesn't make sense. I think it affects everyone in different ways. It's not like a cold or a flu where you, you, know, you can just 
well, I mean, you can't cure flu, you know that, you can't cure a cold either. But you can manage it with meds and, and stuff like that. I don't think mental health is manageable. I think everyone has their own way of doing it and dealing with it. My way of dealing with it is, I guess, is viewing it like Tetris, where I could just get to a point where if it gets to the top and builds up, I'm at a tipping point, I'm at a breaking point, and I, I know I'm not, I don't lose, but I don't get to a new level. I don't know. Yeah, you can't function. It's game yeah, over. Yeah, 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 yeah. For the kids who don't know what Tetris is, there's a very good Futurama episode joke where they reference it, where there's a robot on a construction site and he's using Tetris to build like a building and then he gets distracted and he's like oh don't put that one there and then like all of the tetris blocks go because <laughs> he completes the line says so, yeah and so whenever, whenever i think of tetris i always think of that joke i've got two questions left mate the first one is what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health related or self-help related but it doesn't exclusively have to be god i mean i don't read enough books or a podcast, play, TV show, any piece of popular culture content if it's not a book. Yeah, I mentioned it at the start of the episode. The podcast I listened to with, with Carl Robinson and Paul Warren and the way Carl Robinson was dealing with his mental health and the way he was acknowledging his mental health actually made me think about it in a really different and profound way. I can't remember what the podcast is called now. Moments of Truth or something, but it's a BBC podcast and it basically just follows the, the ends of the season. But... Just the way he acknowledged his mental health. There's no easy way of dealing with it. And I think the only way you can deal with it is acknowledging it. So if you have triggers of acknowledging it, I think that's a massive step into how you're going to deal with it, which sounds really weird. But as I say, if you don't acknowledge it and if you just let it simmer and sit, it's never going to improve. Things are never going to get better. So yeah, if you acknowledge it and you acknowledge those triggers that are making it worse or impacting it the most, I think that is the, the main route forward. And I think everyone will find different different ways of dealing with their mental health, but acknowledging it is probably the f- most difficult bit, which is probably why most men struggle. I don't think that they acknowledge it. It's probably why most people struggle, actually. It's just that, that acknowledging it, because I think if you get to that point, I think it's much easier dealing with it than it is acknowledging it. And as a final question... This is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I think it's conversations like this. I've never spoken about it. And, you know, even reflecting on the last you know, sort of hour we've, we've been speaking, Freddie, I need to have these conversations with people that I know. And now they're not natural conversations. You're not speaking about football, then all of a sudden, At the start, yeah, yeah. You're not speaking about football, then all of a sudden, you just go. Anyway, mate, tell me about that trauma you yeah. went through 15 years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you have to build up to it. Yeah, they're, they're not. They're not icebreakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, nice to meet you. I was diagnosed with depression. I was 14. How are you? No, that's antisocial, isn't it? You don't, you don't want to hear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You got to build up to these things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's just about me being mature and acknowledging it, as I was saying just a minute ago being mature about it and having these conversations with people. I mean, even just asking your friends how they are, it's, it's so cliche now because, you know, there's all these all these campaigns that say, just ask your mates, all these people putting on social media, just ask me how, how they are and stuff. It does help because that might open up a deeper conversation. It might not, but at least you're throwing it out there. At least you're throwing the notion that we need to talk about it if we want to talk about it. If we can talk about it, we will. I think even now I'm just trying to, it's not easy by any means, but these conversations aren't. I don't think 
they're not overly comfortable for anybody. But I think it's just a case of just just acknowledging it and confronting it. I think it's probably the best approach because then that can hopefully open up different layers, which then gets to that point where people might acknowledge something that they might not have before and that might help them. And on that note, Justin Peach, thank you so much, mate, for coming on the Just Checking In podcast, talking to me about your mental health for the first time and chatting to me. No, I appreciate it. really enjoyed it. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thanks to Justin Peach for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him all about Second Tier Pod and his mental health. I'll put a link to where you can follow Justin and the Second Tier Podcast on social media in the show notes if you're a football fan and you want to subscribe to a new EFL podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that and you can make a one-off donation or you want to buy event tea, you can go to our link tree, which is linktr.ee slash eventshelpuk. That is also across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Thank you.